Hello, and welcome to this biblical education series on the ancestral narratives in the book of Genesis. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Please visit our website and Facebook group to learn more about our congregation and the ways that you can support the work that we are doing here in Waco, Texas. All right. Hello, friends. I hope you all are uh, doing well. Um, We are back here with our Wednesday evening Bible study at One Fellowship United Methodist Church. I just want to say welcome, welcome, and welcome. I hope that you all are staying safe, that you all are keeping well. Uh, My friends, we're going to continue in our study of Genesis, looking this week at Joseph. If you will, will, please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful for this day. We are thankful for the opportunity to study, to think, uh, to read, to learn. We ask, Lord, that you will unsettle our expectations so that we may see the world around us in a new light. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, my friends, uh, we are going to dive right into the story of Joseph this week. Um, one of the fascinating things about the story of Joseph is uh, the, the ways in which the story moves, the movement of the story from chapter 37 of the book of Genesis through chapter 50. And we've talked previously about uh, the other ancestors in the book of um, Genesis, and we've noted that even though there are many similarities that, that hold these ancestral stories together, there are themes that show up time and time again in how the stories are told, that they kind of connect them all together. We also noted that there are some really significant differences, not just in the character and in the character development of these ancestors, but also in how God relates to them. And so we're going to see a new set of themes showing up here in the book of Genesis. Uh, for one, we're going to start seeing God's going to start showing up and, and sort of guiding Joseph. There's going to be this theme of dreams as a way through which God communicates. Um, we're going to see this theme of clothing with jo- uh, garments with uh, with Joseph, um, as Joseph moves from position to position inside of each of these stories, he's going to get a new set of clothes, which is going to be remarkable uh, to see how they kind of hold the whole story together. So my friends, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, Genesis chapter 37, we're going to begin in verse 1, where Jacob settles in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. And then it's going to tell us this is the story of the family of Jacob. And this is that language that we have gotten many times before in the book of Genesis, that that language, these are the generations, the Toledot. Remember, the genealogies in the book of Genesis are remarkably important for moving us from story to story, from generation to generation. And so here we get another one of those genealogy formulas. This is the story, or this is the account of the generations of Jacob. And so the story sets right in, telling us about this character, Joseph. And and from this point on, we're going to get this remarkably cohesive story that moves very differently than what we've gotten with past uh, ancestors in the book of Genesis. Uh, In verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. Here we're getting this theme of shepherds again that shows up all over the place uh, in in not just here, but the Hebrew Bible in general. He was a helper to the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. We're already seeing some tension here between Joseph and his brothers. Remember, Joseph is a son of Jacob. Jacob, though he has uh, 
two, two wives initially. Um, each wife gives a handmaiden to Jacob. He ends up with four wives in total through which uh, the 12 tribes of Jacob um, or the 12 sons of Jacob are born. And so now we're in this very complicated situation that is actually not uncommon in ancient texts in which you have multiple wives within a household that all have children. And there's this question of status among them. And this is actually going to open up a bit of tension between Joseph and his brothers that connects uh, the story of Joseph to earlier stories in the book of Genesis. Remember, there's this theme of sibling rivalries that shows up in the book of Genesis that is continually threatening the promise to the ancestors. We get this in, in this tension between, uh, between Isaac and, and Ishmael. Which son is going to be the one to inherit um, the, the blessing, the father's blessing to, to sort of inherit the estate. We're going to get a similar thing, this tension between Jacob and Esau in uh, the Jacob story. And so here, once again, we're opening in familiar territory. Now, verse three, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age and he had made him a, uh, and this is where we get the image of this sort of richly ornamented robe or some translations uh, might say a coat of many colors. We all recall uh, um, the, the children's coloring books where they you know, color uh, Joseph's multicolored coat. Well, here's the thing. Um, the idea of the coat being colorful uh, really comes from a Greek translation of this text. The, the Hebrew word is not uh, entirely certain. Um, it could mean something along the lines of he, he had a coat with sleeves. You know, it just had longer sleeves. But either way, we do see this word show up elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible as a marker of status. Actually, it's used as royal uh, garments at, uh, at one point in 2 Samuel 13. And so what we're seeing is this preferential treatment. Israel loves Joseph more than any of the others. He's giving him these gifts that is distinguishing Joseph from the other brothers. And this is important to keep in mind as we move forward, not only because we have seen this before in the past, uh, we saw this um, with the, the tension between Esau and Jacob, how Isaac uh, had a preference for Esau um, and Rebecca had a preference for Jacob, and we saw that tension play out. We're seeing that tension show up once again in the story. <clears throat> and so here in verse four, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably with him. Once Joseph had a dream, and this is going to introduce a key motif here for the story the idea of dreams. And, and in fact, uh, throughout the Joseph story, what's remarkable is uh, not only the way that the story is driven by dreams, but um, the fact that dreams tend to come in pairs in the Joseph story. They tend to come in sets of two. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. What could this dream be? I mean, his brothers already kind of disliked him. He said to them, Listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, and then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you gonna reign over us? Are, are, are you indeed gonna have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more. There's a symbolism inside the dream. Joseph saying, hey, I had this dream where all of you are going to one day bow down to me. 
But then, verse 9, he has a second dream. Remember, these dreams are coming in pairs. He had another dream and told it to his brothers again, saying, Look, I've had another dream. The sun, the moon, and the stars were bowing down to me. (laughs) But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What kind of a dream is this that you've had? Shall we all indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow down to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him even more. But his father, his father kept the matter in mind moving forward. Now, now here, here's the thing that we see. As this tension is escalating, there, there's kind of this, this question um, that emerges. Where is this hatred coming from? Where is this tension between the brothers coming from? Because recall, earlier in the story, it says that uh, Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his father. And so it sounds like Joseph is kind of provoking them. And then his father gives this this gift to Joseph that kind of sets him apart. And so is it the father that's uh, causing this, that's provoking this? And now we're going to see the brothers beginning to act out of, um, it seems like everything's just kind of compounding the hatred that they have. Verse 12, (coughs) now his brothers went to pasture their flocks uh, or their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And so he answered, he said, here I am. So uh, he said to him, go now, see if all is well with your, with your brothers and with the flock, bring them back to me or uh, bring word back to me. Um, So he sent him from the Valley of Hebron. And so what happens here, and we're going to skip ahead a little bit is that, um, Joseph goes to Shechem where he expects to find uh, the brothers. He's wandering around in the field. He finds someone uh, who says, nope, nope, they're not here. They've, they've gone uh, to Dotham. And Dotham, this is like 15 miles from Shechem or so. So it's, it's quite a hike uh, moving by foot, particularly with, uh, with a bunch of flocks um, in tow there. So uh, Joseph goes after his brothers. He finds them. And when they see him at a distance, remember, they, they hate this guy. And so they conspire to kill him. And it's really Reuben who, who here stands up to, uh, to try and protect Joseph's life. And it's interesting, throughout this story, there's, um, you, you get two brothers that are repeatedly emerging as sort of the leader of the pack, and in some sense, the uh, voice of responsibility. You get Reuben in some parts of the story, and you get uh, Judah in other parts of the story, who are emerging as kind of the older brother that's bringing the wisdom. So uh, let's take a look here in in verse 22. Reuben says to them, he says, look, don't shed any blood. Throw him in a pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben had this idea that he was going to come and and rescue Joseph, bring him back to his father. So Joseph comes to his brother. They strip him of the robe, uh, the long robe that he's wearing, this this, symbol of his status is stripped from him. And we want to pause to to recognize that every time Joseph's status changes in the story, his clothes are going to change. And so here, his garments are stripped from him. We're going to find uh, the same thing's going to happen when he's he's put into prison. Same thing's going to happen when he moves from prison into uh, Pharaoh's household. Um, As his status changes in this story, so does the outward representation of him. See, clothes are going to become very symbolic in this story. 
They're, they're going to become highly symbolic of, of his status, of his presentation. And he begins the story, and the presentation is of him as a favored uh, son in the household. <coughs> so they put him in the pit. They sit down to eat, verse 25 here. And looking up, they see this caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, it's important to, to pause and remember, we've talked about how Ishmael is a very important character throughout the book of Genesis, even though the story is going to follow the lineage of Isaac. Ishmael is still going to be a very important character, not just in Genesis 16 and in Genesis 21, but because when we get to the to the generation of Jacob and Esau, Esau uh, goes and finds his wife from uh, among the family of Ishmael. And now here, once again, we're getting the family of Ishmael coming back the Ishmaelites. We see them interwoven throughout the story in the book of Genesis. So the Ishmaelites are coming. They are going down to Egypt. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? And, and, and I want to pause here for a moment because this language of concealing the blood is, is really important. Actually, the theme of blood shows up a lot in the book of Genesis. So when Reuben tells um, the brothers, just a few verses earlier, he says, don't, don't kill him, okay? He says, shed no blood. Don't shed any blood. And recall in the book of Genesis, we, we get this sense that you can't really conceal blood that's been shed. Remember, it, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel. Cain slays his brother Abel, but can he conceal the blood? No, the blood's crying out from the ground for vengeance. Uh, and, and, and we get that language kind of echoed uh, later on in, in the Noah story after the flood, when uh, God makes his covenant with Noah and he says, don't shed the blood of another person. This, this theme, the sacredness of the blood that God grants to humanity. There's this theme in there that it can't, when, when wrong is committed against it, it can't necessarily be concealed. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And so his brothers agreed. Verse 28, when some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, let me pause for a second here. Where did the Midianites come from? Hang on. This, the story says that the brothers saw the Ishmaelites, right? And so um, they, they scheme to, um, to, not kill, uh, to not kill Joseph, but to sell him to the Ishmaelites. But then all of a sudden, these Midianites show up. And it says they drew Joseph up. And here's the question. It, it, when we often tell the story, we often say that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. But when we read this, it's not actually clear that the brothers are the ones doing the selling. The brothers scheme to sell, but then these Midianite traders show up. They drew Joseph up. And the question is, who is that they? Does the they refer, refer to Joseph's brothers? Are they the ones who are lifting Joseph up and selling him? Or does it refer to the Midianites? Are they the ones who pull him up and sell him? Uh, to the passing Ishmaelites. And, and the thing to remember is the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, they, they all go back to Abraham. This, this is all um, a, a, 
a large family tree. So remember, um, Midian is a, uh, a child of Abraham. Genesis chapter 25, in the beginning of Genesis 25, this is right near the end of the life of Abraham. Uh, it, it gives us a list of Abraham's other children that he has. And, and Midian is one of them. And so we have the Midianites, we have the Ishmaelites, and now here we have the children of Israel, of Jacob, all from the same family. Reuben returns to the pit, verse 29 sees that Joseph is not in the pit and he tears his clothes. He returns to his brothers and he says, the boy is gone and I, where can I turn? And so there's this question, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Now they're going to have to conceal what they did to Joseph. Now here's the interesting thing though, is remember that theme of blood? They're not concealing blood here, but now they are using blood in their concealing. It's interesting to think about how that theme gets woven throughout this story. So they slaughter a goat, they dip the, the robe in the blood, um, and, and they took this robe to, to their father. And they say, this we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. And of course, uh, Israel recognizes it. And so in verse 33, he says, it's my son's robe. And, and he assumes a wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. So now Jacob tears his garments, puts sackcloth on his loins, uh, uh, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, no, I will go down to Sheol with my, uh, to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. We get that theme of garments again. Notice. Joseph's status change, uh, when Joseph's status changes, when, when he goes from being this, this privileged son in the household to now being a, cap, a captive in the pit, they strip him of his robe, of his, of his long robe. They take that off. And then when, uh, now we see when Reuben realizes what's taken place, what does he do? He tears his clothes, his garments. Israel does the same thing. This theme keeps coming up. The changing of the garments. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Wait, how did the Midianites get Joseph? Wasn't he sold to the Ishmaelites? There's this question here of the peoples, of the families. This, uh, what, what is going on here? The very next story in chapter 38 uh, can feel a little out of place. Now, it's not. It's, it's actually very beautifully interwoven into the storytelling. And so we're, we're, we're going to kind of move over it a little bit because we're focusing on Joseph here in this study. <coughs> but um, verse 38 is a story about Judah. And what's fascinating is that um, in this story, it in many ways is going to parallel, it's going to have these, these thematic parallels with what we just read about Joseph. But it's also going to have parallels about uh, with the story that's going to come in Genesis 39, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So, for example, in this story, the story of Judah, garments, once again, are going to be a very important symbol um, of one's identity. And so we're, we're going to move past uh, chapter 38. I'm going to recommend that you do read it at some point. Um, we're going to go down here to uh, chapter 39, and this is a famous story that we have. We, we reconnect with Joseph in the storytelling. Joseph is taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, uh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, he buys him, and now he's buying him from the Ishmaelites who sold him down there. So remember, the end of, verse, uh, the end of chapter 37 is the Midianites who are selling him, and in the beginning of chapter 39, it's the Ishmaelites who are doing the selling. 
And of, of course, uh, if, if um, many of us are familiar with this story, the Lord is with Joseph and he becomes successful. Uh, he's very successful in Potiphar's house, so much so that uh, he finds favor in the sight of Potiphar. Potiphar puts him in charge of all that he has. He trusts Joseph. And, and let's pause for a second and recognize that this is also going to be a key theme that we come across in the book of Genesis. This idea of being a blessing to others. And in some respects, this is going to connect all the way back to that ancestral promise, that initial promise to Abraham. That through Abraham and Abraham's family, uh, he will be a blessing unto all the families of the earth. And here we see Joseph, a blessing to this household down in Egypt. And we're going to find no matter where Joseph finds himself, he is going to be a blessing to those around him. He is going to be this conduit for blessings uh, to those around him. And we're going to revisit that in just a minute. Let, let's finish up with this story here. Okay, so he finds favor in Potiphar's household. He's doing great. And then, of course, uh, Potiphar's wife shows up. And there's there's this, this temptation that takes place. And... Um, Potiphar's wife, as the story goes, is trying to trying to seduce Joseph. Joseph won't have any of it. And eventually Joseph flees. And when he flees, she grabs a hold of him. And in the text, in, in chapter 39, verse 12, what does she grab? She grabs his garment. Remember that theme of clothing? There's this changing of the clothes whenever there's this changing of the status. And so when she grabs his garment, he leaves his garment behind. And, and between verses 12 and, and uh, 18 in this chapter, the, the word garment is going to show up like four or five times because now she's going to take his garment and use that as evidence to falsely accuse him. Stripping of the garment, stripping of his status, stripping of his outward presentation, the outward symbol of his identity, the outward symbol of who he is. Once again, Joseph Lee, uh, he, he loses this outward facade of his identity, of his role in this social situation. But does that change who Joseph is? Does that change Joseph's calling in this story? No. Because we find that even when Joseph is put down uh, into prison, um, in, in verse 19, his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, this is the way uh, your servant treated me. He becomes enraged. He has Joseph uh, imprisoned. Joseph is now, <coughs> is now um, confined in prison. And uh, what is the, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, um, the prison keeper, the jail keeper, what, what does he do? He puts Joseph in charge because Joseph is a blessing again. And what does it say in verse 21? But the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him steadfast love. By the way, that, that language of steadfast love, Hebrew, chesed. It's, it's, uh, we sometimes translate it as love, but it's not uh, like we would think of as love in, in, our, in our modern sense. Um, there is this element of loyalty to it. You know, in, in, in our modern world, you can love someone, but that doesn't mean that love is loyal. Uh, there, there's even this sense that, you know, sometimes people talk about falling in love, falling out of love, as if that love can change. This, this idea of steadfast love, when you see this in the Bible, this idea of chesed, um, this, this has a very strong component of loyalty. It is something that does not go away. So in uh, Psalm 136, 
steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And it tells the story of, of creation, tells the story of Israel, tells the story of, of uh, high points, low points. And you know what? God's love, God's steadfast love remains there forever. It remains loyal. It doesn't go anywhere. And so what we find here in this story is that even though Joseph's position is changing, even though his status is changing, even though the fortunes around him are changing, the blessing of God on his life remains consistent. His calling remains consistent. No matter where he goes, he is a blessing to those around him. Once again, connecting us back to that uh, Abrahamic promise that through you or by you, God will bless all the families of the earth. Genesis chapter 12, and we get echoes of this kind of promise language, this covenant language in chapter 15 and again in chapter 17. It shows up over and over again. And it's fascinating to think that throughout this story, one thing that's constant, that Joseph is a blessing to those around him. That does not change with the seasons. It does not change when his social position changes or when the outward presentation of who he is, the outward garments he wears change. His identity, his calling, uh, the blessing of God on his life, that remains consistent. And my friends, that should be a remarkably powerful word for us to receive. When we think about how often we find ourselves on shifting sands, how often we find ourselves in seasons of change, of seasons of uncertainty. God's steadfast love remains there forever. Our calling remains. Anyways. It's a powerful story, but, but let's, let's, let's continue here, okay? Um, Joseph's now in prison, and now we're going to get the dreams reoccurring again. And once again, the dreams are going to come in, in pairs. There's going to be a group of two dreams. Uh, so while Joseph is in prison, um, first he encounters, uh, in, in chapter 40, um, he now encounters a cupbearer and a baker of Pharaoh who find themselves in prison as well. And each of them is going to have a dream, and now Joseph is going to interpret them. And, and, and I want to pause for a moment uh, because we're, we're starting to see another thematic parallel here between Joseph and other parts of the Bible. Joseph finds himself taken from his homeland, sold as a slave. But what, what, uh, what really gives him this, this sort of, he has this remarkable presence, this remarkable gift that leads to his elevation in someone else's land, in someone else's world, in someone else's kingdom. He can interpret dreams. Does that remind us of anyone? It's very similar to the story of Daniel. Daniel also finds himself taken off to a foreign land in slavery. And what leads to his elevation is, is this profound wisdom that God has granted him with and this ability to interpret dreams. And in the book of Daniel, there is this sense that, that Daniel's service to the king is this connection to God, to the creator. Uh, and sustainer of all things. And that by having that connection, Daniel inherently has value for any king that he serves because he has this connection to a profound depth of wisdom and insight into the things that the other wise individuals of the world do not have. We're going to see the same thing here with Joseph. So Joseph is in prison. He sees the, the, um, the baker and the cupbearer, and each of them has a dream. Uh, verse 2, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in the custody of, in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Verse 4, 
the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them and, and he waited on them and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both have a dream. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream and each dream with its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who uh, were with him in, cust in custody in the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And so they tell him, they say, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not all interpretations belong to God? Remember, dr dreams in the ancient world, uh, they, they had to be interpreted. They were seen as having almost a hidden meaning that uh, required some kind of connection to the realm of the divine to interpret. Uh, it, this, this had meaning that was beyond our comprehension as mortals. And so the only way to uh, understand that meaning was to have someone who had a connection to the realm of God. And so here, who is it that has this connection to God? Joseph. And what is it that's going to make Joseph uh, um, valuable in this story to each of these characters? It's this connection to God that he has, this wisdom that comes with it, this insight that comes with it. Okay, let's, let's get into these dreams here. So uh, <coughs> verse 9, we're in chapter 40, verse 9 of the book of Genesis. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and, and the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out, and the clusters ripened in the grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hands, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But remember me when it's well with you. Please do me the kindness to make mention of me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this place. Let's continue. We then get another dream. You see, the chief baker sees that uh, the cupbearer had a favorable interpretation. So the chief baker decides, well, I'm going to have at this also. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph said, oh, this is not so good. This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Notice it's, it's the same language that's used with the cupbearer. In both cases, Pharaoh is going to be lifting up their head. In one case, Pharaoh is lifting up the head of the, uh, of, uh, the, the cupbearer in this sense of lifting him back up to his former status. But here, Pharaoh will lift up the head of the baker from him. That's not as good. <laughs> And so, as the story goes on in verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants. He, lift up, he lifts up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his uh, cup bearing. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but the chief uh, baker was hanged, just as Joseph had said. And, and, and I want to point out how this story ends here, uh, particularly in verse 23. Because verse 23 is going to say, yet... The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. 
And here's why I want to point this out. How did this episode of Joseph's time in prison begin? It begins by reminding us that God was with Joseph. And, and it even tells us, it uses this language in verse 24 or verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. God was with Joseph in prison and he shows him this kind of love that is loyal, that does not forget about him. But the human characters, they forget. God doesn't forget. People may forget, but God does not forget. Let's continue, my friends. <clears throat> we get that, that series of two dreams in, ver in chapter 40. And then in, in chapter 41, we're going to get another series of two dreams here that are going to drive this story forward. This time, it's Pharaoh that has both of the dreams. Um, and and if, if you know this story, you know that uh, Pharaoh, he, in this, uh, at night, he has this dream. Um, he's standing by the Nile. And there comes up out of the Nile these, uh, uh, these seven sleek cows and these seven fattened cows. And they graze in the reed uh, grass. And then there are seven uh, other cows, um, ugly, thin. They, they came up out of the Nile after them. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows eat uh, the seven sleek and fat cows. And then Pharaoh wakes up. And then he falls back asleep. He has a second dream this time. This time he's dreaming of ears of grain, uh, plump and good. And they're growing all on one stalk. And then there are seven ears that are really thin and like blighted by the east wind. And they sprout up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, the seven full ears. And Pharaoh wakes from this dream. <laughs> and so in each dream, there, there's this, this theme here of the scarcity, the symbols of scarcity are going to consume the symbols of abundance. And so in verse eight, in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of his wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And you see this, this is another one of those parallels here that we see with, with Joseph. Um, another one of those parallels that we see with Joseph or, I'm sorry, that we see with Daniel, is that uh, the same pattern shows up with Daniel, um, where Daniel finds himself in the service of the king, interpreting dreams that the wise men or the magicians in, in the king's court couldn't interpret. Remember, dreams in the ancient world were seen as highly symbolic, and you needed to have a connection to the realm of, of the gods, to the realm of God, some kind of connection to this divine realm in order to understand their meaning. So by implication, the Egyptian magicians, do they have a connection to the divine? The Egyptian wise men, do they have the, the necessary connection to God? Well, it's saying no. Who does have that connection? It's Joseph. We're going to see this theme, this, this tension, we could say, between sort of the, the uh, we could almost say the Hebrew prophet character and the Egyptian wise men play out, again, throughout uh, the book of Exodus as well. Recall in the book of Exodus, when we get the plagues of, of Egypt, uh, Moses and Aaron both, um, you know, are sort of the, the agents through which these plagues come. And in each case, Pharaoh's magicians are trying to keep up. They're trying to reproduce and do the same things to show that they have just as much power. But eventually they can't keep up. <laughs> that theme is going gonna, is gonna to expand there in... Um, in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we get almost this contest. Contest between God and the Egyptian pantheon. Who is it 
that is really sovereign over this world, over all the elements of nature. The, the, the contest between the prophet of God, singular, and all of the wise men of Egypt. Who is it that really has the connection to the divine, the connection to God? And we see that theme starting to emerge here in the Joseph story. Pharaoh calls in all the wise men, but they do not have the wisdom, the insight, the connection to understand this dream. And so the chief cupbearer, he, he just happens to remember. It's a good thing that people sometimes uh, remember things. Remember, God doesn't forget. People forget God, not so much, okay? Uh, the the cupbearer though, he remembers. And so he tells Pharaoh, he says, well, you know what? There, there is one person when, when I was in prison who uh, <coughs> could interpret these dreams. Maybe we should go get him. And so in verse 14, then Pharaoh sent for Joseph. He was hurried through, uh, hurriedly brought out of the dungeon. We're in verse 14 here. When he had shaved himself and, get this, changed his clothes. Chapter 41, verse 14. Joseph's status is changing, and so his garments change once again the outward symbol of his social status, the outward symbol of his identity, the outward symbol of the role that he is playing in this story is changing throughout. But does Joseph's mission change? Does the ancestral promise change? Does his calling to be a blessing to those around him change? That will remain consistent. Pharaoh tells Joseph the dream tells him that he was deeply concerned. And, and in, verse, uh, um, in verse 15, Pharaoh says, I have heard that you could, uh, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph tells him, it's not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Because who is it that, he, that can provide the meaning, the interpretation of these dreams? Well, ultimately, you need God. You need some kind of access. But who is it that has that connection to God? Is Joseph. And, and, and that's, that's, that's what, what is driving throughout this story. And so Joseph provides the interpretation. There are going to be uh, seven years of, um, of, of uh, plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so you need to set someone, uh, someone with wisdom, someone with insight, um, over the land of Egypt in order to uh, store up food during these years of plenty so that we can survive during years of famine. And so Pharaoh looks around and he says, well, hmm, where am I gonna find someone like this? Well, Joseph, you seem to be doing pretty well so far. Um, and in fact, Pharaoh actually says in verse 38, the, exact, the, the wording is, can we find anyone else like this? One in whom is the spirit of God? Who has the spirit of God? We get that same language, by the way, or similar language uh, in the book of Daniel, referring to Daniel. And so, Pharaoh uh, appoints Joseph, and now here uh, in chapter 41, verse 42, okay, Pharaoh removes his signet ring from his hand, and he puts it on Joseph's hand. So that's giving Joseph the authority of the kingdom, the authority of Pharaoh. He arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Joseph's changing of the clothes once again. His role is changing once again. But does his identity change? Does the promise change? Does his... Uh, his role as a blessing to others change. No matter how many times he changes his outward appearance or his outward status, his mission of being a blessing to those around him remains consistent. It remains the same. <clears throat> 
as the story progresses, uh, jo you know, we, we get the story of uh, Joseph. He, he takes a wife uh, among Egypt. He has two children. Um, and the, there's this, uh, I, I want to mention one of the children. Both children are very important. We get both Manasseh and Ephraim. I want to mention Ephraim real quick. Ephraim uh, is going to become very prominent um, in, in later biblical stories. The name Ephraim, uh, the tribe Ephraim, becomes a very powerful tribe uh, among the Israelite tribes. We get uh, Ephraim referenced a lot as sort of a, a symbol for the northern kingdom of Israel in many of the, uh, of the prophetic texts. Um, in verse 52, the name Ephraim, when Joseph gives his name, he says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. <laughs> and I want to pause on that for a moment because that's another theme we see that kind of carries these stories together. Whenever the Hebrew people uh, in these stories, whether it's through the ancestors or, or not, enters into a land of misfortunes, God still manages to find a way to bless them through it. It's, it's, it's remarkable. A Abraham uh, goes down into Egypt, and we could say a very unfortunate story takes place there. Uh, Sarah is put in, in considerable danger um, because of Abraham, uh, to be quite frank. Uh, but yet he comes out uh, with so many more rich riches than when he went in. You know, the, the symbol of he came out with more. Jacob, the same thing. Jacob goes uh, to, to um, the house of Laban, and Laban is this trickster character. Laban is not to be trusted. And Jacob gets played. He gets tricked. But you know what? He comes out of that situation so much stronger. He goes in one person. He comes out this large family. And we're going to see the same thing happen here with the story of Egypt. This is in many ways uh, foreshadowing what's going to take place. Joseph goes down into Egypt, but God still makes him fruitful in the land of his misfortunes. We're going to find in a few chapters later, uh, the, uh, the whole uh, family of Israel is going to go down into Egypt. And of course, we know the story. They become very fruitful there. It becomes a land of their misfortunes. But when God brings them out, they're now a nation. They go in a family. They come out a nation. See, it's, 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 this theme shows up in a lot of the Hebrew texts. Go down into the land of misfortunes, but God still finds a way to make you fruitful. We could probably point to Daniel in some respects as, as carrying on that theme. And I think we can point to a lot of the Hebrew prophets that provide this hope for... Uh, for the Jewish people after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the exile, when they're exiled out in the Babylon and there's this question, um, you know, they, they don't have their king, they don't have their land that God had promised them, they don't have their temple anymore. What makes them a people of God if they don't have the temple to worship God in? What makes them a people of God if all of the, the promises that they'd received seem to be null and void now? And then you get the prophets who start showing up and the prophets start looking back at, at the earlier, at, at, at these, these stories, these traditions, and they start pulling on this theme. Well, you know what? When we've gone down into the land of misfortune before, God has still found a way to bring us up. And if God's done it once, well, you know what? I'd be willing to bet he could do it again. And so in a lot of the Hebrew prophets, you start to get this language uh, of, of a second exodus. The Israelite people went down into Egypt. God didn't forget about them there, did he? Which means when the, Israelite, when the Hebrew people now go to Babylon, is God going to forget them there? No. Because God is a God who doesn't forget. His steadfast love endures forever, we could say. Key theme that's going to run throughout these texts. Let, let's, let's continue here. <laughs> Over the course of the next several chapters, we get um, 
the, the reintroduction of Joseph's brothers to the story. And I want to just kind of provide a, a brief overview of what takes place here in, uh, in chapters 42, 43, and 44. Um, in, in chapter 42, 10 of, brother, of Joseph's brothers now are going to go down to Egypt. The famine has spread up to the land of Canaan. Uh, the, the house of Israel now is beginning to feel it. And so they decide, you know, we have to go to Egypt. There's grain in Egypt. We're going to go get food. But uh, Jacob says he will not send Benjamin. No. Well, why? Well, because remember, Joseph had this favored status because he was the, the son of uh, Jacob's favorite wife. Well, when Joseph was gone, then who was the one remaining son of Rachel? Well, it was Benjamin. And so Benjamin, in some respects, kind of inherited this, this, this favored status almost. And so uh, Jacob wouldn't send him down. And so uh, Joseph's 10 brothers come down to Egypt and Joseph accuses them of being spies. <laughs> and, and what's fascinating, what happens is Joseph is going to set up a test for them. You see, the test is on the surface to prove that they're not spies. After all, they had uh, talked about their household. They had talked about their brother. They had talked about their father. And so on the surface, the test that is being set up is, okay, prove you're not a spy. Bring back your, your younger brother that you say you have just to prove you're telling the truth, to prove that you're honest. But you see, what Joseph is actually doing is he's setting up a, a different sort of test. There's that test on the surface, prove you're not a spy. But there's a test beneath that that Joseph is going to run on his brothers. And so um, Joseph uh, in chapter uh, 42, he eventually uh, decides to keep Simon and he, he imprisons Simon and he's going to send the other brothers back uh, with the food. And he says, okay, when you come back, bring Benjamin to prove you're telling the truth. And then I'll release Simon. It's a test within a test though. He's not looking to see it, whether or not they're spies. So, as, as the story progressive, uh, progresses, Jacob refuses to let Benjamin leave, of course. And so Simon just sits there in prison. Uh, the, the family apparently just abandons him there until they run out of food again. Genesis 43. So now they have to return back for more food. And this time they say, well, look, he told us don't come back unless you have Benjamin. So we have to bring Benjamin. Now, Jacob is very reluctant, but they have to do it. And so they bring Benjamin down into Egypt. And this is where uh, Joseph's going to conduct this other test. So remember, the surface test was prove you're not spies. Bring your other brother. When they get down to Egypt, Joseph uh, invites them into his house. Um, and all throughout this story, we, we get this theme of sort of guilt. Like they're constantly thinking they're being paid back for the, the evil, the wrong they had done to Joseph. Joseph invites them into his house and he has them for dinner. And then he arranges them according to age around the table. And so he arranges them according to what their status should be. But then when the food is served, Joseph has five times the amount of food placed on Benjamin's plate. And so here's what happens. He sets up this scenario where they have their, their, you know, their hierarchy according to the ancient world, according to the ancient customs, oldest to youngest. And one of the younger brothers now is being privileged above the rest. Where have we seen that theme before? Well, that's how this story began. Joseph, a brother that was privileged above the rest. He wasn't the oldest. No, he, he was jumping to the front of the line, so to speak. And, and that led to the, the hatred of his brothers and ultimately them willing to sell him down into Egypt. And so now Benjamin has inherited that status. And Joseph is going to test them again. He puts them in order and he's exalting Benjamin in everyone else's presence. 
And so in, uh, in chapter 44, he sends them all home. Uh, he puts silver in their sacks, but then he puts his personal cup in, uh, in Benjamin's bag. <laughs> and the, the text actually calls this cup, it says it, it was his cup for divination. Um, so it's not just, uh, not just a fancy cup. This is actually a sacred object, you know, and you, you, you definitely wouldn't steal from someone, but you don't, you definitely don't want to steal someone, something that's sacred, something that, that means so much. Joseph sets this up. Once they leave, he sends his servant after them to go arrest the thief. And the servant comes up to the brothers and he says, one of you has stolen uh, Joseph's cup or one of you has stolen the cup. And the brothers say, okay, so none of us have stolen anything. The one who stole anything should die and we'll all be your slave. And uh, the servant says, no, 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 we won't do that to you. The one who stole will be a slave. And they all open up their sacks and they find Benjamin. The, the cup is in the sack of Benjamin. And here's what, here, here's the situation that Joseph created now. <coughs> all of the brothers can go free if they let Benjamin be taken into slavery. All of the brothers can walk away from this if only they let Benjamin go into slavery. Jo that is the test. You see, Joseph is testing them to see if, they're, if they would do the same thing to Benjamin that they did to him, to see if that's still who they are. They sold Joseph into slavery and, and concocted this whole scheme so that they can uh, get rid of someone they were jealous of. And now he's giving them another opportunity to sell the privileged son, the, the exalted son or whatever, into slavery. It's a test. It was a test within a test. And um, of course, they, they won't let Joseph go. They all go back down. And it's when they all come before Joseph in, in chapter 45, that's when he finally reveals himself to them. Um, once he sees that they weren't just going to let Benjamin go, they weren't just going to uh, sell Benjamin into slavery in order to save their own skins. <clears throat> and of course, um, as, as, the, uh, as the story unfolds, they, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers um, in, they, they are in shock. They're in awe. And in chapter 45, in verse 4, Joseph says to his brothers, he says, come closer to me. They come closer. They're still kind of in shock. And he says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom uh, you sold into Egypt. <laughs> but then he says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. You sold me here. Uh, or don't be angry because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. And, and this is one of the parts of the story that I don't entirely like. But still, there's this remarkably profound uh, theme that we see emerge. The idea that sometimes the God can still work out good through horrible circumstances. It's, it's as if even though, yes, his brothers did something really horrible, Joseph still sees the hand of God working to bring about good through it. And that just connects back to that theme we see throughout the Joseph story. Joseph's position in the story changes. His social status changes. His outward presentation changes. His garments change from story to from from uh, chapter to chapter. But this connection to God doesn't change. This idea that God is working through it all doesn't change. This idea that He's going to be a blessing to those around Him doesn't change. He's going to be a blessing to those around Him, whether He's uh, whether He is um, in Pharaoh's household or whether He's in prison. Whether he's at the top 
of the social uh, hierarchy or at the very bottom. He's going to still continue to be this, this blessing to people around him. Um, and, and it's just remarkable to see that. And so, of course, when, when Joseph reveals himself, he, uh, he, he sends his brothers back to go get their father. Their, their father uh, comes back down in chapter 46. Um, and in, in chapter 46, his, his father, Jacob, he stops at uh, Beersheba. He has this sort of, um, uh, he offers sacrifices to God and God speaks to him through visions. Once again, saying, I'm the God uh, of your fathers. Um, do not be afraid. Go down into Egypt. And what's fascinating is uh, this location, Beersheba, this, this is actually uh, the same place where, um, where God told Isaac to stay in the land and not to go to Egypt. So back in chapter 26, remember, God tells Isaac, don't go to Egypt. And it was here at Beersheba. And now here at Beersheba, God's telling uh, Jacob, okay, now it's time to go into Egypt. And so um, as the story unfolds, the, the famine comes, but uh, Joseph had prepared well. Uh, they, they weather the famine. Um, Joseph is reunited with his brothers. He's reunited with his father, Jacob. And uh, <clears throat> Jacob, in, in his final hours, presents a blessing uh, upon his sons, upon the sons of Joseph. And Jacob comes at the end of chapter 49 and breathes his last. And there is this story of, of mourning, not just among uh, the, the sons of Jacob, but among all Egypt. And, and we get to verse 15, though. There's one more component of this story that I want to be sure we, we see. Because once Joseph's brothers realized that their father was dead, they say to themselves, Chapter 50, verse 15, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? And, and recall throughout this story, the brothers are constantly suspicious that they're being paid back for what they'd done. That somehow uh, uh, the deeds that they did were being returned upon their own heads. So in verse 16, they, they come to Joseph and they say, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. <coughs> and he said to, uh, and then his, brother, his brothers also wept. They fell down before him and said, we are here as your servants. They fell down before him. That's the fulfillment of the dream. It started this whole thing back in chapter 37. Joseph said, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones in this way, he reassured them and speaking kindly to them. And I, I want to point out that when this story ends, there's still this recognition in Joseph that, that God is constantly at work behind the scenes and that he can still find the hand of God in, in such tragic circumstances. And that, that uh, is not particularly a, a teaching I'm always comfortable with because we all know how tragic this world can get sometimes. But still, it's a remarkably powerful thought. But one of the things I, I want to be sure to touch on here is the way this story is often taught. Oftentimes, we hold up this story as sort of this, this model of, of forgiveness. 
Um, and, and it certainly is a powerful story of forgiveness. Uh, but oftentimes we, we hold this up as a model that, that we all should follow in terms of offering forgiveness. And, and I want to pause and recognize that forgiveness, the path of forgiveness is very much a part of the calling of the life of a Christian in this world, I, I believe. Um, but I want us to see here how complicated this story of forgiveness actually is. It's not just that Joseph wakes up and says, hey, it's all okay. No, Joseph goes through three chapters of testing his brothers to see what kind of people they are, to see if he can trust them, to see if they would just do the same thing again in a heartbeat. He goes through three chapters of doing that. This is a remarkably complex, it, 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 to the extent that we can say this is a story of forgiveness, it's a remarkably complex story of forgiveness because the truth is that to forgive in this world is a complicated process. It is rarely easy. It is rarely fast. It is rarely simple. The truth be told, forgiveness is not a, a, a momentary action. It is a process. It is less a decision and more of a lifestyle. Because the truth is that when we choose to forgive, oftentimes we have to wake up the next day and make that same choice again. And the next day we do it again. And the next day we do it again. Because it does take work. And it takes time. And the truth is that forgiveness is not necessarily the same as rebuilding relationships or healing relationships. Um, those can be two different processes sometimes. <laughs> it's not easy. It is hard work. And sometimes I'm afraid that we are so quick to champion forgiveness and we should be championing forgiveness. The fear is that we're so quick to do that that we rush the process of forgiveness. That we take this remarkably complicated uh, and sometimes painful journey and we just condense it all down and oversimplify it. Yes, there's a very important theme of forgiveness in here. And yes, it is a very long and complicated journey to get there. A lot like how it will be uh, for any one of us in this world who choose to walk a path of forgiveness. And so my friends, I, uh, we, we come to a conclusion of this chapter of the story, the story of Joseph. The, the final um, generation of the ancestors in the book of Genesis, but this is not the end of the story. The story is going to pick up in the very next chapter, in the very next book, in the book of Exodus. And the, the ways in which this, uh, in which Exodus chapter one is going to pick up on the themes of Genesis and the ways in which the, the ensuing story is going to pick up on the themes of Genesis show uh, the, the interconnections here, the fact that, um, that these stories uh, are not necessarily meant to be read in isolation, but they should be read together as part of a much larger story of God's work in this world. And so, my friends, uh, I uh, hope that you have found this, um, this study uh, beneficial, valuable. Uh, we will be back again next week, Wednesday at 6.30 uh, p.m. Look for the announcements. They are to come, my friends. I hope that you all stay safe out there, that you keep well out there. I hope that as you go, no matter what position you find yourself in, no matter what hat you find yourself wearing, no matter what uh, garments you may find yourself presenting to the world. May you always be a blessing to those around you. And may that be something that never changes. Amen. Amen, my friends. Go in peace.